The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to continue in uh, looking at this book together. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read our passage for us, and then we'll start uh, unpacking it together. We are in 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to read uh, starting at verse 13, and then we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him his father, who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. God, as we look at these words and consider what does it mean to walk with you and follow you, I pray that you would help us. Um, there's a lot of things going on in each of these passages, and there's a lot of things going on in our minds and hearts as we come into this day and things that we're processing. And so I pray that you would direct our thinking for these few moments to see you and to want to be like you. So I pray you would do this by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it's generally understood uh, within kind of psychology or counselors that the way you think about things, the way you process the world around you, your thoughts influence your behavior. I, I don't think it's like a very radical idea that the way you think about your life, the way you think about the world changes um, the way you engage the world. You know, so like you're not going to be a Yankees fan and then enjoy going to a Sox game. Like if you're a Yankees fan, you're committed, you think like a Yankees fan. You're not going to go to the Sox and enjoy Fenway Park and all of that. Um, and the way the psychologists kind of tend to talk about the way we think about our lives, they tend to talk about things in terms of autopilot and intentional thinking, automatic thoughts and intentional thoughts. And you might think of this as more like um, kind of the autopilot background thinking of your life and then the intentional thinking of your life, like when you intentionally kind of engage your, your inner narrative. So the... The autopilot stuff is kind of like that inner narrative that just kind of sits behind the scenes and informs kind of how you view the world. It's generally like the things that come to mind when you don't intend to be thinking about anything or when you come into uh, 
stressful situations, it's kind of where you automatically go, or it's just kind of like the, just the background narrative of your head. Intentional thinking tends to be more of kind of when you're engaging your thoughts and trying to either understand yourself or correct your thinking or solve a problem. It's like you're very kind of focused. It's kind of like the rational voice in your head where you're trying to process things. The reason we're in 1 Peter, the reason I bring that up, the reason we're in 1 Peter is because the Bible does both of those things for us. Um, around 43% of the Bible is narrative. And then another... 33% of it is poetry, which you might describe as kind of like these big kind of autopilot, big stories of how God wants us to think about our lives. We've been going through Genesis this, this, uh, this year. We just finished up in Genesis 11 a few weeks ago, and we're taking a break in First Peter. And you might say that the way it might, can I reduce some of that breathing stuff? There we go. You might say that Genesis is um, and narrative stuff is all God's invitation for how to think about him and your lives through these long stories that kind of slowly provoke and shape how you think. So, for example, that's why we like long, really good TV shows, right? If you, I don't know if you're catching up with Stranger Things. I am all on the Stranger Things bandwagon. Bro, Steve is like my jam. Steve's storyline from where he started as an absolute, like, the total jock jerk in high school to where he is now, that's, like, that's the stuff right there. But it takes time, and you'll notice in kind of the way characters like him develop is there's a long story arc where you see them, you see who they are, their flaws, their failures, their good parts, and then you see these kind of, like, critical, kind of, like, my dad always called them, like, come-to-Jesus conversations, like, critical conversations where they kind of, like, come to their senses, and then they begin to change again over time, and there's two steps forwards, one step back, two steps forward, four steps back. They change over time, but there's these kind of slivers where they're intentionally engaged. Genesis and First Peter are going to be kind of like that for us this year. Genesis tells us a huge story of who God is, what he's like, inviting us into this big narrative, this big story of what God is and what he's about in this world. First Peter and the epistles in the New Testament kind of act like these intentional conversations. Like, okay, let's, let's get practical here. What does this look like to live with God? What does it look like to live with God in these particular ways? And let's engage our thinking. So that's what we get when we're looking at First Peter. That's why there's, you know, when you think about, like, the big part of the Bible, like, there's a lot of story. There's a lot of narrative. There's very few letters like this because God wants us to get our, our thoughts shaped and, think, and, and how we think big stories, and then there's these kind of little slivers where we get into particulars, and that's what we're doing here. So just kind of pick up where Peter left off last week. We're invited into this exile that's filled with these kind of paradoxes of tragedy and blessing. What is that like to live in a world where, man, God says he rules everything, but this is really hard. What we get here in this passage in verse 13 to 25 is an invitation or God's instructions on how we think about our lives, how we think about who we are, how we think about the world around us. So, for example, verse 13, it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Right? There's emphasis on your mind. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your father. Right? There's an implication, the, the ways of thinking from the ways that you, were, that you came from. Verse 22, having purified your souls for obedience to the truth, right? Something that you recognize with your mind. 
And this word is given, and then verse 25, knowing this word is given, uh, word uh, is a good news that was preached to you. Again, something where our mind is engaged, right? Prepare your minds. Know what God saved you from. Think through what God's given you in Jesus. So our minds are really at the forefront of how God's engaging our thinking here, which is why I'm kind of starting this out by saying we're engaging with some intentional thinking. When God saves us through Jesus and brings us into his family, he wants us to be like him, to be defined like him, to live like him, to think like him. And so when Peter's addressing our thinking, he's really inviting us to think and live and be like our father who saved us. So here's what I want to say. The main point of what we're looking at here, and we're going to get into this, live like your father because you know your father. Now, when we say father, I don't mean your, your family, your father, and whatever your family is. I mean your heavenly father. When Jesus saves us and makes us a part of God's family in Jesus, people who are defined by a God who sent his son, who died for our sins, who made us alive by his spirit, who made us new in Jesus, that's our father. That's the father that we're invited to be like in this passage. So the main point of what we're looking at here is live like your father because you know your father. And so to know your father in Jesus, to know what he's like, we're going to look at kind of three aspects of how our father, how God thinks, how God thinks about us, how God thinks about our world. What is God's thinking like? And the invitation here is as we follow in step with this, our father's thinking, it will change us to then be more like him in Jesus. So we're going to pick up here in verse 13. Know the shape of your father's thinking. Verse 13 to 17, know the shape of your father's thinking. How does God, what's the shape, what does it look like? What is, what is God's thinking? What is it, what's the picture there? So here we go. Pick verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, right? Again, this family language. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Again, another kind of like mental thinking word, your former ignorance. But as, you who, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Right? At the heart of what we're talking about here is we just actually, I don't, I don't know if this is intentional, we sing a bunch of songs about God's holiness, right? God's, it's like you guys are looking at the passages, planning things out. God's holiness is, a, is at the heart of what we're talking about when it says like the shape of God. God's thoughts. What does God's thoughts look like? They look like holy thoughts. Well, what does that even mean? (laughs) When I say the word holy, I'm not sure what comes to mind, but each of us maybe has our own kind of engagement with that word. It's not like something that we use a lot. It's it's a very religious word. I mean, um, you don't see Coca-Cola doing advertisements with the word holy in them. (laughs) Uh, Well, Maybe not intentionally and necessarily a good use of it. When I think of like holy or holiness, like uh, uh, for those who are from like a Catholic background, like your holiness is how you address like a priest or something like that. It's a a religious term where you engage with somebody. 
And then, I mean, personally, like in my experience with my folks in the neighborhood and in the city, it's, um, you know, your holiness is kind of used like a pejorative, like, oh, you're so righteous and morally upstanding. You're so good. Like, you look down on the rest of us, your holiness. It kind of has like a negative connotation to it, right? Like, it's not a word that we really use, and so it sticks out to us because we're like, well, we're called to be holy? Like, God is holy? Like, what does that even mean? Well, here, I want to kind of look in that and consider what is the, what's the big picture of what holiness means in the Bible? God, um, this is a, a citation from Leviticus where God says, you are to be holy like I'm holy, like about four times or something like that. And it is an indication that God wants you to be, or when God says holy about himself, he is undefiled. The word means undefiled. It is set apart, so he's different. But primarily, the emphasis is an, orient, an orientation towards God being who he is on his own terms. He's different from us, right? He's separate. He is like God. And we kind of get into these kind of mystery terms because you're kind of like, well, isn't that self-referential? God is like God? Yes, that, that's the way this works. God is so different from us, so distinct, so pure, that the only way to talk about God being like that is God is like godness. So let's use a different word. God is holy. God is set apart. He doesn't have an ulterior agenda other than making much of who God is. That's kind of at the heart of what this is. God loves to make much of who God is in and of himself because he is that type of goodness and love. He's all of who he is. And then he says, you're to be just like me. And what that means when he's talking to us, you are not supposed to have ulterior agendas, God plus something else, God plus me. It is an enjoyment of who God is on his own terms for himself. I can appreciate that this is a little confusing, but it is God is good and great and pure and kind and filled with love and just. He is set apart. He is holy. And so when he says, you're to be holy like me, he is saying, you are to be undevoted, undivided in your devotion to me your enjoyment of me, your delight in me. That sounds like a better picture of what holiness is rather than this. We tend to have this picture. I'm not sure what your experience is, but holiness is kind of like it's us distinct from those defiled people over there. We are set apart. We are doing our own thing. And those people over there, we aren't like them. They're the tainted ones, the defiled ones. We are undefiled because we're separate. And to that point, I want to ask, throughout this huge story of who God is and what he's like in the entire Bible, where do you find God living out his holiness? Among people who were defiled, <laughs> who are faithless, who are broken. When God says these things, be holy like I am holy. Do you remember where he says that? Right? He's saying that in the middle of people who are literally rebelling against him at that very moment in the storyline of the Bible. He's saying it to people that he then puts his house, the tabernacle, the way Israel uh, sets up their whole camp. It's God's tent right in the very middle. 
and then all these people who don't like to really obey God, enjoy him, or live like him, right in the middle of them. His holiness is lived out among people who are not like him, but that means his holiness is always directed towards people for their good. Israel, of course, throughout the whole history of the Bible, and we can just pick up in the New Testament, the church in the New Testament is not exactly filled with people that you would call morally upstanding. And yet God loves to live out his holiness among them. His enjoyment, delight, and who he is, his absolute devotion to what it's like for God to be God, and his invitation for us to be like that is lived among people that he is not like. And so here we have Peter telling us, but since he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's living out of what it means to be holy is done among people that are not like him. This is why, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has this said about him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? Jesus was so among his neighbors and the people around him that you couldn't really, like, it was easy to say, look, there's Jesus hanging out, cracking ones open at the barbecue with all of his neighbors and friends while they're getting blasted, and there's Jesus right among them. Now, is that saying Jesus got drunk? Don't think so. I think what it means is that Jesus lived out his distinction among people that were so different from him that it wasn't off-putting. It was alluring and drew them into him. Uh, we're watching right now. Um, so you guys know the Spider-Man movies came out, right? Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home and all that stuff. So with the boys, I'm kind of going back and revisiting, like, the Spider-Man movies that I grew up with. And we were watching um, The Amazing Spider-Man last night with Andrew Garfield. And I just kind of got into, like, I just really like Andrew Garfield. He just strikes me as, like, a really cool guy. Like, I just like him as a person, the way he describes, just engages in everything. Just a, a cool guy. Like, I just like to be friends with him, you know? <laughs> I'm not, like, I'm not trying to be creepy about it. I'm just saying, like, I like him. <laughs> so I was reading his Wikipedia page, and he... Um, about five, six years ago, he did a movie called Silence, which is about Jesuits who go to Japan and the way in which their Christian faith is handled. And Andrew Garfield, in the interviews that are about him from that time, he says, like, look, I'm an agnostic. Like, I'm not really, like, I don't have a religion. But he describes kind of going through these Christian practices and having to really, I guess for him, potentially for the first time in his life, kind of seriously engage Jesus. And his comment was, it's hard to walk away from engaging seriously with Jesus and not fall in love with him. That's what I mean here when it says, be holy like I am holy. When you engage with Jesus, who was, take the biblical accounts at face value, like nobody else who's ever walked the face of the earth, who is holiness embodied and sitting and living among us, eating at our dinner tables, hanging out with us for the barbecue, his life even through written pages 2,000 years ago, is alluring and inviting. His holiness brings us into who God is, who wants that type of God. So when Peter tells us, be holy like this 
God is holy. He's not saying go do your Bible studies off away from other people and get away from all the neighbors around you that are defiled and have their confused lives and don't understand what God's all about. He is saying that Bible studies are not bad. Do Bible studies or whatever. Engage with God in such a way where you live out the character of God among your neighbors and friends around you so that during the time of your exile, which is the entirety of your life here, the people who aren't a part of God's family are invited in. They want in on what God is doing and what he's like. Where do you live out your exile, your holiness? It is through the time of your exile, right? This holiness isn't offensive, it's giving. This holiness does good for others. This holiness, if you think about the shape of what God's holiness is like in Jesus, is self-giving for the good of other people around us. That's not to say you're just exactly like. There's a distinction defined and characterized by this life of God, but it is like God lived out for the good of other people so that they benefit. If your neighbors are not benefiting from your holiness, then it might not actually be holiness. Holiness is good for other people around us. People always benefit when other people, when people grow in Jesus, whether it's this church, Hope Tabernacle, any other church, as people grow in being more like God, our neighbors benefit from it. It's an alluring, it's a good thing that people benefit from experiencing. And just to clarify one thing here, if this is God's holiness, self-giving, he is distinct, but self-giving, good, kind, gracious towards us that we're supposed to embody, that means that in the midst of our many failures, (laughs) which is very true, God's orientation towards us, our Father's orientation towards us is continual compassion and goodness redirection towards following him. It's not something we deserve, but his holiness is always among us for our good to give us new life in him. So let's pick up here, verse 18. If that's the shape of what our father's thinking is, let's pick up here with the hope, know the hope of your father's thinking, verse 18 to 21. So uh, backtrack a little bit to verse 17 just because of the way seven, the verses... And if you are calling him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now picking up in verse 18. Knowing, again, our mind, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, per- not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Right here, the, the, the general picture is fairly clear here, right? You, apart from Jesus, we are all born into ways that will hurt, hurt us or harm us. We all know that we need change. We all know that we are born with a broken system, whether regardless of what religion you are, we all are born with this sense of like, there's something not right and we need to change. We need something to change, not only in us, but in the world around us. And the way God answers that is by sending Jesus to conquer sin and death, to buy us from our own sins, to buy us away from our own death, 
to give us new life in him. That's kind of the general picture here. But we all see this in our lives around us, right? We all want change, whether it's through, you can talk, you can kind of pick up on any thread. It's kind of the big ones, and kind of, at least in my experience of the world right now, politics, you pick up politics. What's used the power of government to enforce change on other people who may not want it or like it, but they will, by the power of government, agree with us? Now, that's true whether you're Republican or Democrat. It doesn't really matter for your political persuasion. The use of power through, the, through government to enforce change so that other people conform to what we want. Economic power, right? The use of, of our finances or the economic system around us to grow and gain our own confidence and life in this world. I don't know if you guys are, this is gonna be potentially a self-revealing question. Does anybody scroll Reddit? <laughs> okay, so I apologize for bringing this up if you are not in a Reddit, but in, Reddit, in the Reddit world, there's this whole like anti-work community. This is that, the reason that that is there is because people are fighting back against the use of economic power to dehumanize and um, dominate other people, right? That's the reason that that's a whole there is because people have used the economics of I pay, I give you a paycheck, therefore you do what I want as a way of changing the world around them. Or you think about all the sci-fi movies that we watch. How do people change in the future? It's through the use of technology. Now, the reason I bring all those up is because when Peter talks to us, he says the hope that God gives us is in Jesus Christ himself, who is fully God and fully human, and he is at the front, the center stage of God's plan to change the world. So that means our hope is in Jesus. Now, these other things that we talked about, whether it's government, economics, technology, the point of bringing those up is that our hope for change in those things is in government, economy, technology. Your hope for change in the future in all these sci-fi pictures or whether it's Elon Musk's ability to download your brain into something, I mean, that stuff freaks me out. Or it's Facebook's uh, meta world, whatever it is. It's in the change, of, uh, our, the change of who we are through technology. But what God offers us in Jesus what our Father wants for us is to be fully human, to be exactly who you are, redeemed and renewed without the, sh the, the chains of death and sin and shame holding you so that you then are made to be more like Jesus in the future. That's the hope of God's thinking about you, to be more like Jesus not to have some technology implant in your head or to give you lots of money or to overcome the government to be more like God, but through Jesus to be like him. That is the shape, that is the hope of God's thinking for our lives. That's why I just, to, I'm not gonna really get into like a theology discussion. If you have questions, that's why we have the Q&A at the bottom here. I may or may not answer questions about predestination or foreknowledge. But the whole point of what's going on here in these verses, when it says he was foreknown, God's entire plan before the blink of an eye at the beginning of the universe was for everybody to be renewed and redeemed, to be like Jesus. I, I feel awkward doing this in this very moment because I'm standing center stage. And really, like, I wish there could be a way of being like, 
me preaching and just pointing to Jesus over and over again. He's the center stage. He's the one we're hoping to be like. God, I hope that you don't want to necessarily be like me. <laughs> I want you to be like Jesus. He is at the center stage of all of God's plans for you. So what does this mean for our lives? Sometimes when we run into conflict or just kind of watch the world around us, I always just kind of wonder, like, what's the goal here? Like, you ever read, like, Facebook comments or you read YouTube comments or anything, and you're just kind of like, okay, I get that's your opinion, man, but what are you trying to accomplish here? Like, I just don't, I don't know what you're trying to accomplish. When God looks at our lives, he doesn't say, just like I really appreciate the way Peter led us through last week, even the whole category of suffering and trial, God doesn't, like, afflict us with trial. But in the midst of every part of our lives, we look at these verses and we walk away with this confidence, this hope that whatever our stories are, we know what are you trying to accomplish, God, in the midst of all of this in my life. The answer is to be like Jesus, period. That is how God thinks about all aspects of our lives, whatever they are. Whether the good things that we prayed about earlier, the trials we're walking through, the big, what's the goal here, God, is for your life to be more like Jesus. So that means that whatever you engage with, good, bad, disappointing, sad, happy, exhilarating, beautiful, worthwhile, disappointing, whatever those things are, God can pick each one of those things up and use them to shape you to be more like Jesus Christ himself. That seems more life-giving to me than, well, Jesus, but you also need this uh, new upgrade, this technological upgrade, whatever it is. We need you to get you more, some more money in your life. No, each of these things that we experience is to shape us to be more and more like Jesus. And the reason this is a confident hope is that at the end of the day, the reason people are trying to use government economics power, whether it's technology or whatever, everybody is afraid of death. And here, in this miraculous story of Jesus, death does not end the story of his change for you. He's actually overcome death itself. That's why he keeps coming back to referring to at the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, so that your hope has a secure point beyond the point of death. We each are going to have a date at the end of our tombstone. But Jesus has gone beyond that point and works backward in our lives so that there's something he's doing now that shapes us and gives us a hope that this change in our lives is more secure than death itself. Okay, we're going to pick up here verse 22 and kind of close us out. You guys tracking? We're cool? Okay. Live like your father because you know your father. So we've looked at the shape of our father's thinking. We've looked at the hope of our father's thinking to make us more like Jesus. Now know the work of your father's thinking. Verse 22 to 25, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh, is like, all flesh is like grass, sorry, I keep misstating that, and all glory 
is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Sorry, I feel like that, that middle section is like a tongue twister. I, anyhow, when you look at these, verse 22, I just, the reason I'm saying this is know the work of your father's thinking. Notice the hard work words that are here, right? Purify, obedience, sincere, earnestly. They're, they're all intentional words. They're all words that require work and effort. They're all words that require us to do something by trial and error for a long period of time, right? They're not like, hey, during the pandemic, go and fail that one time that you want to do your sourdough starter, right? They're not like the sourdough starter of effort, right? How many of you tried to do your sourdough and did it once and didn't do it again? Just me? Okay, me and Annie. Me and Annie Annie are vibing right now because we know we, hey, let's do the sourdough thing. Did it once. That was it. This is more about long-term effort, right? Purifying takes time. I mean, we're in New Hampshire. What's, what's the ratio of maple syrup or maple sap to syrup, like 40 to 1? Yeah, that's a lot of effort <laughs> to purify that stuff down, Right? It takes a lot of time. Um, we all know people that have started that thinking it would be a great project, and there they are at 2 o'clock in the morning still purifying their maple syrup. It takes time and effort. The point here is that that's what Peter is identi- identifying with, identifying for us, right? You are called to holiness. Okay. I want to be more like God in a way that is alluring and inviting into the life of God. Okay, so I'm going to take that God, and I'm going to put it. I'm now going to do that. And then the progression is, okay, this is hard. Not as easy as I thought it would be. Okay, don't worry. In the midst of all that, Jesus is who you're being made to be more like. Don't worry. Don't give up hope. God's still in it. And then Peter ends this by saying, keep at it. It's a cycle that keeps repeating itself. You need to keep revisiting this, keep working at it. I love this phrase here. I just, I, there's parts of this where it says, I just want to lean in for a while, but love one another from a pure heart, right? Having purified your souls for the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, one another earnestly from a pure heart. I want to pick up on this word sincere, and this is not in the original, but this is just kind of the way we use it in English. Sincere comes from, uh, I believe, the common understanding is, the sincere comes from this Latin word, sine and sere. And the combination of those is meaning in the, in the Latin usage, um, without wax. Now the reason, that's like sincere to without wax, I'm not exactly sure where that came from. The reason that came about is because in ancient times, people would make uh, marble statues and busts and all that stuff, um, and then there would be cracks in it, and they would fill up those cracks with wax to hide the, wa- hide the, the, the cracks and all that stuff so that it looked like it was better than it was. And so the statement, without wax, means it's genuine, it's real, this is what it is. And so when we use that to say, are you being sincere, we really do mean, is this like a play or is this for real? Like, is this a put on? Or are you being true right now? And when, that's, that's the point out that here, what Peter's saying is, 
have a true, real, genuine, pure love for other people. And that's why I keep saying, this is work, <laughs> right? If you're going to be among your neighbors, if you're going to be among any church, it takes effort and time. That's why for the rest of the Bible, in other parts it says, love covers a multitude of sins directed towards our life together as a church. We're just going to bump up against each other. It's going to be hard work. The work is not so that you're forced into a position of saying like, mm, I guess I like Jacob anyways. That's not the point. The point is so that you live in a way that is constantly, I will give for the good of this person because I want to be more like God who gives for the good of other people around me. That doesn't mean that you have to be forced into a situation where you have to like if you feel like you've been oppressed or abused or something like that, you then have to like act like nothing's happened. Um, relationships where there's been serious harm, serious changes to the relationship. But you can still work towards a way of giving, okay? I don't have to hold this on this person anymore. I want them to know God and find repentance, but it doesn't have free rent in my head anymore. I want love, a type of giving, that is for the good of other people. This takes, verse 13, preparing your minds to be sober-minded. There's a whole shape to what's going on here in these verses so that the Father that we're called to be like is invested in among us at every step of the way. He is the one who's given us the shape for what our lives and our thinking should be like. He's the one who's then for what our lives and what the value of each moment of our lives has, he's put that hope beyond the, the, the point of death so that no matter what anybody else says about you, you know in Jesus you're being shaped to be like this person who's conquered death on the other side of it. And he's called us to get to work. Stay at it. Don't check out. He's with us. This takes effort and this takes time. And might I say that's the reason why Peter goes on to finish these, these verses out by pointing us back to the Word, by pointing us back to the Bible, where we continue to be refreshed, not by one-off sermons where you're reminded of this, but you're reminded by the shape and power and strength and scope of God's love through the whole course of this book so that you are re-envisioned and filled and empowered by Jesus through the Word. The call of this passage is for us. Live like your father because you know your father. Because you know his gracious, merciful, empowering, death-defeating, life-securing thoughts towards you in Jesus. And you want to be more like him. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage and thought through this together, I pray that you would have used this time to strengthen us by your love, to be among us by your spirit, to help us to be people want to be more like Jesus. And I pray even, Father, as we Stephen thought about the the word the the witness of Andrew Garfield, that we would not walk away without being in love with this Jesus. We love him more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.